This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey guys, I'm Shane Bacon, and I want to tell you about a new podcast called Get a Grip with Max Home and Shane Bacon. One guy that has probably hit a 350-yard drive, considers himself an athlete mostly because of his unreal papa shot abilities, and has in fact started to show off signs of a tricep forming, is our own Max Homa, PGA Tour winner and fan favorite online. Max and myself turn out new episodes every week to give the fan a unique look at golf and all that comes with it from someone that spends his work weeks on tracks we all dream to play, grinding and out with the best in the world. Listen and follow Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts right now. Happy Saturday, everybody. We have gotten a few notes from listeners lately who have told us they would like to hear more episodes about events rather than people. So we have gone into the archive today for the Battle of Hastings, which first came out in January of 2014. Also, our listener suggestion list has way more people than events. They at least five times as many people as events. So if events are more your bag, feel free to suggest some that you would like to hear about. We are, as always, at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Enjoy! Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. I discovered when we talked about uh, the, the Hessians, mm-hmm. I kind of like talking about battles. Who knew? I know. I, I didn't know. bloodlust. Until just now. <laughs> Uh, so today we're going to talk about a battle that longtime listeners may remember a little bit about, thanks to our episode on the Bayou Tapestry, which was hosted by Sarah and Dublina back in 2011. The Bayou Tapestry, which is really a piece of embroidery and not a tapestry, is a visual account of the Battle of Hastings and the events that led up to it. So if you know anything at all about European history, you can probably at least boil the Battle of Hastings down to a sentence, which is that the Normans invaded England in 1066, and their victory ended the Anglo-Saxon phase of English history. If you actually grew up in England, you probably know a whole, whole lot more about it than that. It tends to be something that's covered extensively. Uh, in English schools because it is so central to the history of England. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, sadly, when you mention it, at least when I mention it to most people that I know, and I'll say, oh, Battle of Hastings, they will do what I have done previously in my life and gone 1066, and that's the one thing they remember. Yes. So. Yeah, I I had that exact conversation with the boyfriend where I said, we're going to talk about the Battle of Hastings. And he said, oh, 1066. Husband as well. And, <laughs> and I said, yes. And he's like, we won, right? And I said, you don't know what this Who is. Who is the we in yep. this case? We had almost an identical conversation at our house. So, so uh, just like with our recent episode on the Hessians, where people can boil down the Hessians to a sentence that's not really indicative of what actually happened, that one sentence description 
does not do the whole Battle of Hastings justice. So today we're going to look at that in a lot more detail, uh, including lots of stuff that's not covered in the Bayou Tapestry episode. Yeah, because that's a lot to cover in one piece of sewing. Well, <laughs> it's a very long piece of sewing. It is. And now I think of the Futurama episode where they kind of did a spoof of it. That's funny. About uh, invading a spider planet and they were weaving the tapestry from the silk of the spiders as the battle was happening. Wow. I need to go watch that. I love my Futurama. There's no secret there. So first, though, we're going to get back to history and talk about the backstory uh, on this little ditty. And we have to go back a little bit of a ways to get a feel for what was really going on when the Normans hopped into the picture and invaded. Uh, in the 5th century, Germanic peoples, known as the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, began to immigrate to what we now know as England. And at the time, this area was mostly inhabited by Celts. Uh, as the Germanic peoples moved in, they pushed the Celts into what we would now call Scotland. Wales and Ireland. So the word England comes from these Germanic peoples. It actually means land of Angles. By the 8th century, uh, Christianity had really started to spread through a lot of England, and people from Denmark had also started to move into the area as well. And so with all of these influences, the language kind of evolved into what we now know as Old English. So at this point, England was a mostly Christian nation, and it mostly spoke one language, although there were several distinct dialects, and it was ruled by a king with earls who were responsible for specific regions within the kingdom. And the Vikings started invading Britain in the 9th century, and over the span of roughly 150 years, Vikings conquered a lot of England. But then the Anglo-Saxons, uh, living in Wessex, led by Alfred the Great, staved them off and started pushing them back out again. In the process, they were honing their battle abilities and really making the Anglo-Saxon world a power to be reckoned with on its own. After this point, there was a period of relative calm, which lasted about 50 years before the Vikings came back and started up a new cycle of pillaging and plundering and then retreating back to where they came from before coming back for more pillaging and, and plundering. It sounds very exciting, but it, it was actually quite dangerous. Well, yes, the often exciting things are. Uh, and this was kind of the state of things uh, when one of Alfred the Great's direct descendants, Edward, entered the picture. And today we know of Edward as Edward the Confessor, but that was a name he was given about 100 years after his death when the Pope uh, recognized him as a saint. So Edward was born in about 1003, and because of all these ongoing Viking attacks, he and his family took refuge in Normandy for a number of years, and there they naturally built a lot of ties to Norman society. So they made a lot of friends there, were influenced in their politics while they were living there. It took several failed attempts, but Edward finally returned to England and became king in 1042, and he brought a lot of Norman advisors and kind of Norman politics along with him. And Edward married a woman named Edith, although they had no children. So this left a question of who the heir was going to be. Uh, and there's no written account of exactly what transpired there. But the general historical consensus is that in March of 1051, he announced at a council meeting that he wanted his kinsman, William of Normandy, to take the throne after his death. This did not sit at all well with a guy named Godwine, who was the Earl of Wessex and Edith's father, so Edward's father-in-law. 
He had actually been a favorite to become the king himself and was hoping to see one of his own children or grandchildren eventually on the throne. And atop of these own aspirations of power that he had, he really was a legitimately powerful person and he had a much stronger backing than Edward did among the other leaders of England. And this tension between Godwine and the king really took England to the brink of a civil war. And eventually, Edward outlawed Godwine after he refused to punish the people of Dover, which fell under his earldom, for an attack on Edward's brother-in-law. And Godwine and his sons and most of his family fled to Flanders and Ireland, and then Edward banished his wife to a nunnery. This seems kind of ruthless on Edward's part. Didn't want anything to do with those people anymore. <laughs> yes. That's like a brutal divorce at that point. It is. And and he also, in the aftermath, made kind of a critical mistake. He got rid of a tax that had been used to fund a mercenary uh, naval fleet. The idea was that he was basically giving some everyone uh, who was being taxed a tax break. And he probably thought that if he really needed an army or a naval force, that he could just call it up because he was the king. Um, and in a lot of circumstances, that probably would have worked. But that, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on whose side you're on, meant that when Godwine came back across the channel with his own fleet in 1052, Edward did not have a force ready to fight him off. And on top of Edward not having uh, enough manpower to resist Godwine's attack, public sentiment was... Uh, pretty firmly on Godwine's side at this point. People just did not like the idea of a Norman line of succession. And they didn't even like how many Normans the king had among his advisors. So Edward was basically politically forced to pardon Godwine and his family. And they once again took up their positions of power in England. So when Godwine died, his son, who was known as Harold Godwineson, continued to be a very powerful figure in England. And this would turn out to be a problem when it came back around to the line of succession. So now we're going to hop into the the Norman backstory on it. Yes. Uh, So over in Normandy, William was Earl. Uh, His wife was Matilda of Flanders. And Flanders and England were not on terrific terms. Uh, This may have been one of the reasons why Edward promised the throne to William to help keep him in line and discourage him from lining up with Flanders against him. But uh, thanks to this whole idea that he was being promised to become the King of England and his marriage to Matilda of Flanders, Henry I of France saw William as a really huge threat. So William had to fend off multiple invasions from France and its allies during the 1050s. And it was really only after William had a particularly decisive victory against them uh, that France and its allies left William alone. And only after his major rivals died did he really seem to get any rest. He was pretty much constantly having to fend off one attack after another. Yeah. That brings us back to Harold. In about 1054 or 1055, Harold visited Normandy. Because of a storm, he actually wound up landing in uh, Flanders and was taken prisoner at first, and William had to come and secure his release. And at some point during this little excursion, for reasons that different accounts report completely differently, uh, Harold swore an oath to honor William's claim to the throne once Edward died. Norman writers say that Edward had sent Harold specifically for this purpose, but English sources either don't reference it at all, or they say that Harold was in Normandy to secure the release of some of his kin from imprisonment. 
So there's a little bit of disagreement about whether or not there was intrigue in the mix at this point. Yeah, this is it's a thousand almost years ago. Uh, and both sides writing about it definitely have an agenda. But either way, the sources all pretty much agree that Harold swore to uphold William's claim to the throne. And then he went back from Normandy across the English Channel to England in about 1065. So we're coming up on the happenings. Uh, So at this point, the stage seems to be set for, one would hope, a fairly smooth succession. Edward the Confessor has promised the throne to William of Normandy, and the surviving person with the next strongest claim to the throne, Harold Godwinson, has sworn an oath to honor Edward's decree. It seems like it should be cool. It does. There, there, there's a third person with kind of a tie to the throne who we'll talk about a little bit later. But at this point, it's really between uh, William and Harold, But it, even though it should not have been, really. But uh, what happened next is that King Edward died after an uprising in Northumbria. He had tried to raise an army to put down the rebellion, but winter was coming, and people were pretty reluctant to get involved in what was really a civil war. So eventually, Edward just had to give in to the rebels' demands, and he was apparently so distraught by his failure to bring Northumbria back in line that he got sick and never got better again. He died at the beginning of January 1066. And the king was buried on January 6th of 1066. And that day, even though he had sworn an oath to honor William's claim to the throne, Harold stepped in and took it for himself. We don't really have a lot of clear historical documentation conclusively telling us why he did this. At the time, though, succession wasn't always a straight-up matter of father-to-son inheritance or of the king designated designating who was going to follow him to the throne. In England, a man wasn't really considered to be king until he had the support of a majority of England's most powerful men. Like we said, England was not super keen on the idea of having a Norman king. And there are also some accounts, including the life of King Edward, which Queen Edith later had written, that said Edward either gave the kingdom to Harold on his deathbed or that he had entrusted it to him. In the Bayou Tapestry, Harold is shown being given the crown. And almost 1,000 years later, we still don't entirely know what went down. So whatever the circumstances are of Harold being crowned king, William objected. And so apparently did Harold's brother, Tostig, who then mounted two different invasions of England. The first came from Flanders, and the second came with backup from the Vikings. So Harold had to spend the start of his reign fighting off his brother in the far northern reaches of England. But thanks to the lay of the land and the position of the English Channel, any invasion from Normandy would make landfall hundreds of miles to the south. And this meant that when William invaded, Harold would have a long way to travel to fight him off. So since we've said 1066 a bunch of times, we know that that invasion is imminent. And before we get to it, let's take a moment and talk about a word from our sponsor. Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. 
Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show. And I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. going to get back to the actual battle. And since we know from the top of the episode that this is what Tracy has gotten excited about talking about. I'm very excited. Go crazy. So it took a little while before William made it to England. He had to raise a bigger army than he already had, and he had to build at least some of the ships that were going to be required to take them across the channel. The weather was also against him for a while, so they had to put off setting sail. He finally landed in England on September 27th or 28th of 1066, and he was on the southeast coast at Pevensey. And he took that town and marched to Hastings, which was 12 miles away, also pretty much on the coast. And at both of these locations, the Normans seized a fort and then modified it to suit their own ends by adding ramparts and moats. And it would have taken days for the news to reach Harold of the Norman force at Hastings. And he had to march his men all the way from Yorkshire, which was about 200 miles away. They basically rode south as fast as they could, most likely dismissing the soldiers who didn't have horses to ride and mustering more as they went. So yeah, he was replacing the people who were on foot and couldn't keep up uh, as they went, basically. Harold met William at Hastings on October the 13th, and the battle took place on the next day. And although Harold's forces had ridden horses to Hastings, they all fought on foot, which was typical in English warfare at the time. William, on the other hand, had archers and cavalry in addition to his uh, boots-on-the-ground infantry. And the English secured a defensible position on high ground, and the Normans approached them from below. So that's just sort of to set up the picture here. Yeah, if you know much about, uh, you know, medieval warfare, or if you've ever played any kind of strategy game that involves soldiers, it, this looks like a really one-sided battle because you had a, you had people who were on foot versus people who had archers and horses. Yeah. We're going to talk about why it was not nearly that clear-cut. Here's how William of Malmesbury describes the English. All on foot, armed with battle axes, and covering themselves in front by the juncture of their shields, they formed an impenetrable body. The English were also armed, we should say, with slings and spears, but it seems as though they did not really have many archers, probably because of the speed at which they had to move to Hastings. So it wasn't like they could rouse all of the uh, archery-skilled gents in the area to come and help. 
Here's how William of Malmesbury describes the Normans. Their infantry, with bows and arrows, formed the vanguard, while their cavalry, divided into wings, was placed in the rear. The duke, that duke is as William, with serene countenance, declaring aloud that God would favor him as being the righteous side, called for his arms. And when, through the haste of his attendants, he had put on his halberk the hind part before, he corrected the mistake with a laugh, saying, the power of my dukedom shall be turned into a kingdom. Basically, there's a story here that he accidentally put his armor on backwards and and then tried to turn that to his advantage rather than uh, seeing as seeing it as a poor omen. I had a nickel for every time I put my armor on backwards. I know. Uh, William of Malmesbury also describes the English as having stayed up all night drinking and singing, while the Normans instead spent the night confessing their sins and having communion in the morning, which is in all likelihood added color commentary and not a real thing. But both sides were clearly pretty worn out. The English from having traveled so far from getting to battle and the Normans from having stood at the ready all night just in case an attack happened. Yeah. So whether they were drinking or confessing, no one had gotten sleep and they were all really tired. Yeah, this this account was written a little bit later in the 11th century. And, and there are parts of it that people pretty much agree are probably right. But then when it gets to, and then the English were up all night drinking. It's uh, kind of like the Hessians thing. Where I they know. Were like, they were all drunk. Clearly because they lost, they must have all been inebriated. And that's really not, cr- not true. So as we said earlier, the battle began with the English Uh, behind this shield wall. And then the Normans were arranged into lines with their crossbowmen at the front and then their soldiers on foot and then their knights on horses. And it would seem, of course, as though the English were at a vast disadvantage since they had neither a cavalry nor very many archers. But they did have the high ground and they had a shield wall and battle axes, which are, in fact, horrifying, though, maybe to think about very effective weapons when it comes to battling Men on horseback. Yes. So if you do not hit the rider with your axe, you will hit the horse and it will go down. Yes. Which makes my sad face happen. I knew when I was typing this that Holly was going to be very sad about <laughs> the horses. so predictable with the animal stuff. <laughs> so William moved his men in kind of waves. They would fire a volley of arrows and then alternate charges with the foot, shul- the foot soldiers and the knights. And there were a lot of casualties on both sides, but the English shield wall held for a really long time. This battle went on basically all day. The tide of the battle turned when the Normans either retreated or feigned a retreat. Some accounts say this was a deliberate strategy on William's part, and others suggest that the Normans actually lost their nerve when a rumor spread that William had been killed. So we don't know why they turned. Yeah, it... it, it's pretty much the the English writers say that, that the Normans uh, all kind of freaked out when their leader apparently fell but had not really fallen. And the Normans, on the other hand, say that it was a, a skilled battle maneuver on William's part. I meant to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Either way, when the Normans started to flee, the English broke their ranks and went after them. And then the Normans turned on them and cut them down. And it's also unclear whether this sequence of events actually happened once or twice. So maybe one time it was uh, 
out of fear and one time it was on purpose. We don't know. But regardless, the shield wall started to fail and the Normans really started to gain ground. Yeah, I, I described this whole battle to, to the boyfriend and he was like, they fell for that more than once. And I said, well, that's a little We don't know for historically. certain. Possibly. Uh, what we do know is that later in the afternoon, Harold was killed. Uh, the the Bayou Tapestry depicts him as being shot with an arrow through the eye in an extremely memorable sequence, but that's actually a, a later uh, account. Like, that's not something that seems to have persisted on the day. Right. So that might be sort of a romanticized, horrifying edition of a, a later historian or writer and not something that actually happened uh, on that day. But when he fell, that's definitely when English soldiers really started to to scatter. Um, and as the sun started to set, the battle was pretty much over with the Normans hoping to clean up the stragglers. Yeah, the Normans went after the stragglers and they slaughtered a lot of them. But many of the Normans were also killed after the battle itself was over. Uh, after piling onto one another against a rampart that was hidden in tall grass. And so this thing ended with just scores of bodies. It's a big body count for this particular battle. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to the women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? All four of my kids are grown and out of the house. And I was chucked out of a 25-year career. Super fun. Our lives have changed direction. So now what do we do? What's the first move when you have no idea where you're headed? For us, it was starting the Road to Somewhere podcast. And we still don't really know where we're going, but every one of our episodes takes us someplace a little different. It's super exciting, but if we're being honest, it can also get a little scary. Because maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting. Or just starting over. No matter what the change you're going through, the question is really the same. How do we get fearless when we feel uncertain? I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So after the battle... Harold had died, 
William had won. But coming to the throne wasn't quite as simple as all that. It, it wasn't so much that William killed Harold in the battle and that William consequently got to be king. There was still actually one other heir to the throne alive at this point. That was Edgar Atheling, who was son of Edward the Exile, who was son of Edmund Ironside, who himself had been king for several months. So Edgar was only about 13 years old, but he did have a much clearer line of succession straight to the throne than either Harold or William did. And while he was not full of supporters all over England, he did have the backing of the archbishop and the citizens of London. And there's really all kinds of disagreement about what exactly took place next. How much force William used making his way to London, and how much the death toll continued to climb, those all still have a lot of question marks around them. We know that it was a really bloody campaign, though. And in the end, Edgar's supporters did back down. William moved on to London and was crowned king on Christmas Day, 1066. He built Battle Abbey on the site of the battle, uh, approximately, as, as we think today, The town of battle grew up around it, and the altar in the abbey is said to stand on the spot where Harold had stood at the center of the shield wall. The aftermath of the Norman invasion really could be its own whole other podcast topic. The next several years were very grisly as the English rebelled against their new Norman king, and William deftly uh, put down their rebellions. Case in point, the harrying of the north, in which William did a whole lot of conquering and pillaging in Northumbria, and as many as 100,000 people starved to death, which is just a huge... It was a huge death toll. Mammoth. There, uh, was, there was a lot of killing and, and, and pillaging for many years. And even though this was definitely a bloody and oppressive conquest, there are some modern beliefs about the Norman invasion that don't quite hold up. For example, the Normans did not introduce the idea of a class system to England. In Anglo-Saxon England, about 10% of the people were actually slaves, and most of the free people were peasants. There was a very, very small, very wealthy aristocracy and an even smaller ruling class that held actual power. So... Anglo-Saxon England, like, was not some kind of utopia where everyone was equal. Yeah. It's also not true that women were better off before the Norman invasion. Uh, That comes up pretty often, too, this idea that that women were equal to men before the Normans, and then Normans started subjugating them. So while it's totally true that women didn't have many rights and privileges after the Battle of Hastings, they really didn't before either. This did, though, uh, have one really huge impact that is recognized and I think most people know about, which is that it radically changed the English language through the influence of Norman-speaking rulers. So by the 12th century, people were speaking what we know today as Middle English, which is the language of the Canterbury Tales. Yeah. So it it definitely had a huge impact on the culture of England, the direction of uh, history. Oh, for sure. It's it's sort of considered a, a watershed moment in English history, especially. Uh, but if you hear people say that uh, the Normans were universally a terrible influence on England, that doesn't quite... William was quite a grisly and bloody ruler. Yes. Especially... But there were lots of bad and unfortunate things going on already. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So today, you can still visit the battle site in Sussex, although there's been some debate really recently 
about uh, whether our modern idea of where the battlefield was is exactly the right one. And uh, in 2013, which is just as research was starting on this episode, the UK television show uh, Time Team claimed that the site of the battle was really about 200 meters away on what's now a roundabout. And they used uh, LIDAR technology to map the area near what's believed to be the actual battlefield. So whether this is actually true uh, is either up in the air or roundly dismissed, depending on who you talk to. There have been several other alleged, quote, real sites of the battle over the years, though. Um, it's one of those things where it was it was a pretty big space people would have been fighting in. People keep sort of trying to pinpoint an exact spot. It kind of it's ranged like saying, a what bit. is the center of an amoeba? Yeah. You know, it's, it's not quite that simple. Yeah. English Heritage, also known as the Historic Buildings and Monuments Commission for England, disputed this whole time team finding, basically saying what we just said, that the battle took place over a wide swath of the area. So really, what was the point in trying to say this spot is where it happened? There are also three completely different sites that have been bandied about as the exact spot in quotation marks. And then there's also a cool thing online that you found that I know you're yearning to talk about. Did It is a Battle of Hastings game. You can play at the BBC. We will link to it in our show notes. You can play as William or you can play as Harold and you can see what the what the results are if you make different decisions as a as a leader in the battle. At first I thought it was somehow rigged because I kept trying to play uh, as as William, and this was before I had researched exactly how the battle unfolded, and I failed a whole lot of times. Aww. And then I played it again after I had read it and went, oh, yes, I see. I see how this works now. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on this Saturday. If you have heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of today's episode, since it is from the archive, that might be out of date now. You can email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com and you can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The richest, most powerful place on Earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. We shall and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating. Or having your first baby. Or leaving a relationship. Just starting. Or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.